Hello, everyone. Adishan Vieira here, and welcome to the seventh episode of the Economics of Everything podcast with yours truly and Alejandro Esquivel. Here on Econ of Everything, we believe that economics in its purest form is a study of how people make decisions. Thus, our goal is to make our audience informed decision makers in all parts of their life. Yeah, we will be doing this by breaking down the topics we look at with data, research, and practicing theories. We will also be looking at topics critically and agnostically, which discourages empirics to employ an economic lens. The goal of our team is to break down the complex nature of economics to help you employ critical thinking strategy and holistic approach on topics to help you become a better decision maker. Today, we'll be talking about debt. Uh, and to kick us off, I found a pretty funny quote from Earl Wilson, who was an American journalist uh, in the past century. Earl Wilson said, if you think nobody cares if you're alive, try missing a couple of car payments. <laughs> I think that perfectly illustrates how much our economy and people rely on debt. I mean, that's true. I don't think I'd be anywhere near where, where I am now if I didn't hold a couple payments to my name. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Uh, but Alejandro, what is debt? Debt is an obligation that requires one party, the debtor, to pay money or other agreed upon value to another party, the creditor. What? You're using a lot of financial lingo right now. Can you uh, dumb it down a bit for me? Sure. It's basically an IOU with some predetermined cost to borrow called interest. Okay. Okay. But why would someone give me an IOU? Well, like I said, uh, they get the interest at the end, but also maybe because they know you, like you, and trust you. Bank checks that through possible other ways, such as a credit score, whereas, you know, somebody that you uh, might know, such as your family member, has known you since your birth. So they trust your credibility and they trust your availability to pay back their, their initial investment in you. Okay. Do you have an example of like what uh, debt would look like? Sure. So let's say you have a $10,000 loan from your Uncle Phil. And Uncle Phil says at 11, at 15 years, I want 11000 back. So that's a 10% interest over 15 years. And that's the cost of borrowing money from your Uncle Phil. Okay. So... He wants to, so I get $10,000 now, and then in 15 years, I pay him back. But like, what do you mean pay him back in 15 years? Is he expecting like a nice big lump sum? Or is there like a way that I can do like a payment plan? Like, what are my options? There are numerous ways that you can pay down a debt. Uh, but this gets into what is called an amortization schedule, which is the frequency of payments throughout the life of the of the loan or of the debt. So you can schedule it like this. Monthly payments of $61 per month for 15 years or a lump sum payment of $11,000 at 15 years. The second would be called what is a balloon payment. Okay, so that seems pretty straightforward, you know, borrow money, pay the, pay the money back. How much impact does debt really have on our economy? Sure. Well, the economy can grow through non-organic ways through debt. Uh, and basically what this means is you can raise your investable capital, which can be used for future productivity and growth. So let's say in the Uncle Phil example, you were taking out that $10,000 for student loan and you wanted to go to school and school allows you to be able to learn, be able to earn a skill set that you will use and utilize for future productivity and growth, which will impact directly the economy. So through that debt, 
it pushes productivity and it pushes growth. Okay. What's the difference between non-organic and organic growth then? So on the flip side, organic growth is money that is currently available capital for your future productivity and growth. So basically money that you currently have in your pocket, let's say you worked at high school at a pizza shop and that's all the money that you had uh, available to go to, to go to school. Um, let's say you only saved up, I don't know, $4,000 to be able to go to school. Whereas with uncle Phil, you were able to raise $10,000. You see you're trading off for the future, but it's the, promise of future productivity and growth that allows that debt to be justifiable. Okay. So just so I can wrap my head around it, non-organic is considered non-organic because it's like using money that I currently don't have, right? And I'm borrowing it from someone else who already has it. Right. Whereas organic growth, it's only using the money that I do have. So if I'm like broke, for example, and I wanted to go to college, instead of being able to do like non-organic quote unquote growth and just borrow the money, I'd have to go and get a job until I can finally pay it off free and clear. Is that? That's essentially what it is. Yeah. Non-organic, okay. the great greatest way I'd say to think about it is uh, through maybe like a plant example, mm-hmm. uh, plant, you know, you're growing a tomato plant and you're using fertilizer and nutrients. Um, whereas organic growth, you don't necessarily have that fertilizer and nutrients. You just have what's available to you right now. So that's, that's the best way I'd, I'd say to think about it. Okay. So what's the difference between like the loaner and the borrower? Are they like the same people or how do you become a loaner and how do you become a borrower? Who normally loan the money is people who are further along in their life cycle or institutions who are, who are available uh, to loan out money and have accumulated money over the time that they uh, are able to invest it back into future businesses, uh, people in student loans, um, people looking to buy capital assets, such as a car, equipment, things of that nature. Basically, the loaner is somebody who has been a, an established wealth or an established money ca- cash on cash hidden um, that they can they can be able to push somebody or something uh, for future productivity and growth. Okay. So then the borrower would be like the reverse of that. It would be... Yeah. So the borrower on the flip side is people who borrow, who have no money or little, uh, not enough money for what they're looking to purchase and need to be able to live in a better state or a better productivity state and need and need that money to be able to get there, to be able to push them to that. Well, you know, going back to the example of Uncle Phil... Let's say you don't have, uh, you know, even $4,000 that you saved up. Uh, well, you need to borrow the money now to be able to earn that skill set, earn that knowledge that you can be able to translate into productivity and growth and thus earnings to be able to pay down that debt. Okay. So loaners generally like, for example, like my grandpa who's had the time to build wealth in his, in his house, who has a lot of extra cash whose 401k is finally paying off and they have a lot of extra cash because, you know, he doesn't really spend as much as he used to. And then borrowers like me who wants to go to college, who wants to buy a house, who wants to buy a car, and I could really use all that extra capital to be able to buy all those different things, right? Exactly. Okay. So what are interest rates? I know you've brought that up a couple of times and you said it's like the cost of borrowing the money, but if you could narrow it down a bit and pin down what interest rates are more succinctly, I'd really appreciate it. Definitely. So interest rates are essentially, like you said, the cost of borrowing money. 
And basically, they're the incentive to want to loan out the money in the first place. Okay. Because like I was saying before, people want to invest in less risky assets. They want to you know, invest in something that they know they can actually receive some sizable return from. And when you're investing in, in debt... Uh, you are essentially being, you know, if you look at it on like a business, a business's balance sheet, debt is the first paid out, whereas equity, you know, on the on the reverse is paid out off the profits made on the business. So the interest rate there basically gives you the incentive to want to borrow that or lend out that money. Through that, the interest rates are basically dictating how money is flowing from lending to borrowing. How do they decide what the interest rates are? Definitely. So the Federal Reserve takes a look at what they call leading economic indicators and essentially is how the economy is doing. It's basically a health check. Um, you're checking the, you know, the pulse. Uh, they're checking, you know, knocking on the knees, uh, just as a doctor would. Um, and they're, they're basically seeing how the economy through money flowing from lending to borrower is operating. So a good rule of thumb is in times of economic turmoil, the Fed can cut rates to encourage debt. So that means they're sparking the economy by incentivizing spending and pushing the economy possibly through a trough or even a recession. Oh, On the okay. flip side, when the economy is hot, we want less debt to slow down spending and pay off past loans so they don't default. Okay. So they kind of use, you know, lower interest rates to help get people to spend more money and because you know money is circulating then it gets the economy to flow and then when we're a little more worried that a recession might happen they raise the interest rates to slow it down to slow spending and like make sure that we're in like controlled growth right okay yeah essentially through through rates which is their one of their main vehicles for prosperity is affecting how the economy gets money from lending to borrowing so what kind of type what types of debts are out there definitely so there's four major categories of debt so the first one being it unsecured. Uh, unsecured lacks collateral made on the faith of borrower's ability to pay back. So some examples of this are student loans, medical bills. But if you have no assets, you can't take, then it becomes unsecured because essentially you're you're borrowing on the faith on uh, your ability to pay down the debt. Or on the flip side, as a lender, you're, you're lending on the ability of the borrower's ability to pay down that debt. The next type of loan is secured. So secured is uh, unlike <clears throat> unsecured because it actually is tied to collateral, meaning there's something that you could repossess if somebody were to miss a couple payments. Um, and this is usually on asset purchases, so like a car, building, or equipment. So if somebody misses a couple payments, the lender can then say, hey, our negotiated contract is now voided. This car is mine. This building is mine. This equipment is mine. Hopefully, you know, the debt is used to actually secure some type of capital asset that will allow future productivity and growth. So you can turn the debt investment into, you know, an able way of collecting cash flow, such as, you know, going to the real estate game and turning, uh, a debt of a of a mortgage or something like that along that nature into a duplex or uh, a rental property um, where you can you know pay down that debt with with the spread yeah i'm a big fan of mortgages those are actually one of the largest number of consumers hold mortgages in the us and it is where a majority of the global debt lies personally i think 
mortgages is a great tool for new home buyers and even experienced investors to find someone to really front up a majority of the bill for a home and then in the long run have a tenant pay that mortgage down so it's almost like you're not even buying the home at all right and let's say you want to you know start a business for that realty business well <clears throat> in order to be able to sustain you know a new roofing or a new railing or a new carpeting uh, you possibly don't have enough money to capitally invest right now. So let's say you take out a line of credit through a bank. Um, this is what's called a revolving type of debt. So a revolving can always be tapped into and paid down whenever. Usually a set set of a minimum payment every month is what satisfies the, uh, the negotiated contract of the revolving debt. Another good example is credit cards. Credit cards are you can take out, you know, up to a certain amount of money and pay that down on a fixed minimum payment every month or possibly every six months, every year, the way that that creditor negotiates a contract. So what kind of debtors or loaners are available in the economy? There's a couple of major creditors who are out there, uh, but I would say that the two most important or the two most used are third party financing. So this could be consumer debt, such as credit cards from a bank, bank loans uh, for a car, for a student, or even family members who loan money. But basically, third party has nothing to do with the actual transaction, and their only vested interest is lending the money to the borrower. Another major proponent of third party financing is through business debt. So this can be lines of credit, uh, bank loans. Okay. Uh, yeah, third-party financing is a, is a really good tool. Mortgages also sit into that category. But uh, personally, I'm a big fan of using seller financing for you to be able to get a good or service. In real estate, that's when you find someone who owns a property free and clear. And instead of going to a mortgage to set up your payments and to set up your financing, you say, hey, seller, I see that you own the property free and clear and I want to buy it, but I don't want to go, go to a bank to get it. So can I pay you? you a monthly mortgage payment uh, on a monthly basis and you'll have all the rights of a bank for you to foreclose and for you to re reclaim the asset but i'm not going to a third party source for me to get the, the money although all the money is sitting between the transactions this is also very similar when you're working in a business format when you have like supplier debt where the supplier of a good or service such as you know cars bmw could loan out the cars and then you pay it back when they when you finally sell the product on your floor so there's many different types of seller financing and it doesn't have to be in real estate you just have to be able to be creative enough to establish a deal that is beneficial for both parties definitely and now the last major form of debt is uh what is actually half of our gdp right now 10 trillion dollars uh whereas our total GDP, you know, output is about $20 trillion corporate debt. So corporate debt is basically a corporation just lends as a, you know, as a debtor from a creditor, getting money from the lender into the hands of the borrower, which is, you know, the corporation in this standpoint. So we have a pretty good idea of what's going on and how debt works. Now you did just mention one of the biggest issues, but Alejandro, do you think that there is currently too much debt in the economy? Well, corporate debt is at an all-time high, U.S. corporate debt, that is, and it stands at about more 
than $10 trillion, as I just said. Now, this can be crippling if it is not being used, utilized for future productivity, especially in times of contractionary periods when the Fed is looking to raise rates. Uh, if that's if they're tied into adjustable rates or if they're tied into you know, some, some not so good debts that they don't essentially want to pay, this could become crippling to the economy. So if they're using like long-term debts to pay off their previous debts, is that what you mean by uh, if they're not being utilized effectively? Yeah, that's one way. Uh, so using debt to pay off debt is something mm -hmm. that we've seen corporations do uh, for quite some time now, but it's really become rampant in this low interest rate period because it's so cheap to borrow. Right. So are there... Do you think that these debt levels are going to be sustainable in the long run? Well, if we continue to use long-term liabilities to pay short-term liabilities, like I was just saying, long-term debts to pay short-term debts, then no. However, on the flip side, if we use the long-term liabilities for innovation and growth strategies, then yes. I think if we get into the period of you know continuing to invest in things that will have and serve a better tomorrow, such as an electric car, such as such as a uh, new manufacturing, new, new, new stuff that'll help us get to a better output level in the economy. I think it's sustainable. But like I, I was saying, those long-term debts, uh, which are being taken out to pay the short-term debts, I don't think that's sustainable for any, any, any amount of time. Personally, I have, I feel like one of the most important factors in having a sustainable system is having the possibility for creative destruction. You know, the, the idea that too big to fail and really bailing, bailing out a lot of these uh, market gamblers, which is, or market borrowers, making risky bets on which debts are going to be paying off in the future, it was really ineffective in the economy in the long run. We saw similar things back in 2008 when the government bailed out, you know, Lehman Brothers and a lot of these other bigger banks who held a lot of mortgage-backed securities. And those were very creative assets, and they were really gambling on a large portion of the U.S. economy, where instead of bailing them out, if they had gone through bankruptcy, we might have seen a deeper recession, but it would have expedited the redistribution of all those mortgage assets, probably could have gotten those assets into the hands of some smaller scale, more feet on boots on the ground type companies who had the ability and the flexibility to really position those assets in a higher growth setting than a large bank who really didn't know what they were holding in the first place. So, you know, having large debts, it's really you're, you're gambling on the future productivity of that good or service. And I feel if you are going to be gambling, you must be able to bite the risk on your own and backing, having the this guaranteed buyer of the government on your back end which really just makes the market ineffective. Definitely. Uh, we can get into that a little bit more uh, as we talk about the Federal Reserve um, and what they've been doing right now, especially in this uh, 2020 period of buying actual corporate debt. So it's mm -hmm. basically allowing for a corporation to say, hey, you know, the, some of the debt levels that we have seen, um, we're going to put it out to the market and test it. But as long as that ultimate borrower or ultimate lender to a borrower is there, such as the Federal Reserve, who has been buying corporate debt, it allows for not really a true backstop, you know, because the, the market is the culmination of continuous pricings. Right. So 
if you have a, a price floor, it becomes an inefficient market because there's somebody that's always going to be there to price it at whatever cost is, is being lent out. Yeah, with the Fed having a balance sheet of almost $7 trillion, it really makes you worry. Like, what, First of all, what are those assets that they're holding? And is it making efficiencies in the market? And, or is it really just protecting those larger scale Wall Street banks who have the assets and the the connections for them to be able to take advantage of that large of a buyer in the global debt market. Right. And with the Fed continuing to buy non-investment grade assets, which is basically a, a fancier way of saying riskier assets, it incentivizes debt creators and originators to finance riskier loans knowing that the US government is basically always guaranteeing an ultimate buyer because some of these riskier debts are being incentivized by the low interest rate period. And like I said, the market is just essentially a culmination of pricings between uh, money haver and money needer. And if that if that transaction does not continue to happen, then that should, you know, just get to a point of, okay, these this debt isn't isn't a good debt. But when the federal government or when the Federal Reserve steps in and says, this is always going to be a good debt to us, we'll continue to buy it. It incentivizes that those those riskier payments and incentivizes even those long-term debts uh, to pay off short-term debts as, as we were just talking about. Yeah, it kind of goes into what happened in 2008. You know, they were there was always a back-end buyer for your, for your riskier mortgages because they could just lump them up into your mortgage-backed securities. And so there was really never an incentive to make sure that each individual mortgage was a high quality investment. Uh, one thing that I am slightly concerned of, and I was I was curious what your thoughts would be, is for my research, once a, once a country reaches a debt to GDP level of higher than 100%, then monetary policy becomes much less effective. You know, the use of interest rates to control uh, inflation and unemployment doesn't really have as large of an impact. Do you think that this will cause the next recession to be longer and less manageable because of the, the smaller impact that monetary policy will have in the future? Definitely. I think it will play a big impact uh, in, in what we'll continue to see to happen. But honestly, monetary policy has already been much less effective in controlling inflation and unemployment rates than it was in the 1900s. That is why we had had to use the zero lower bound in large scale asset purchases in both 2008 and now 2020. This has shown that it is fiscal policy that must step up and distribute cash to the populations that require it most. This was also tried in 2020 with the coronavirus uh, quarantine efforts. You know, the, the, the CARES Act actually put money back into the pockets of American individuals which has never been tried before. And ultimately, I think has had a somewhat of a positive, positive impact on the economy, you know, with unemployment being so high uh, due to due to forced shutdowns, um, it has really helped propel us out of out of that situation. Now, the biggest issue of shifting to the burden of fiscal policy is their short term incentives, such as political cycle terms, and their lack of interest in holding a balanced budget over the long run. So let's say, you know, the fiscal policy is enacted every so often um, and it continues to put that money into the pockets of individuals, but doing so not on the purpose of trying to incentivize the economy to continue to propel forward, doing so on the 
political gain that they'll receive from putting that money into the market, I think is the is the the biggest hurdle that we need to tackle. Right. Well, that's that's one of the biggest benefits of and honestly, negatives that a lot of people point out of the Federal Reserve is since it's a quasi public industry, they have a lot more uh, individuality than, you know, just the Senate or the the Congress for them to be able to do monetary policy, but they also have a 14 year term. So that really protects them from a lot of these political cycles because they're not on a two year, oh, I need to make sure that the economy is hot when I'm up because that helps me get reelected type of mindset. They're really locked into a long-term job and they can make decisions based on the global health of the US, not the individual health of their job security. And it's some of those, you know, conflicting incentives that are already in place in the U.S. Uh, government, which I feel really need to be broken down and looked at to see if we can make a more effective system. Definitely. So we have talked about debt in a informative way today to hopefully get that informed message out to you guys, our viewers. Specifically, we are looking forward to next episode when we speak with a former Goldman Sachs corporate debt investor, Chris White. Chris dives into a very understandable way of how corporate debt works and how to invest in it. Yeah, I'm very excited. I haven't listened to this one yet, so I'm very excited to get to come down, bring out my notepad and pen and really take as many notes as I can. Chris Wright is a great, great market leader for the corporate debt markets. Thank you all for joining us on the seventh episode of the Economics of Everything podcast. We look forward to making more informed decision makers like you. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Econ of Everything, no G and the economics of everything on LinkedIn and Facebook with a G. Also, you can contact us at theeconofeverything at gmail.com. And if you could all give us a like, comment, review on our podcast, let us know who you want to talk to, let us know who you want to hear. We would really appreciate it. The economics of everything. Our interest is in your future value.